Welcome to the podcast, episode nine. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, everybody. Super excited about episode nine here with Jeffrey Tumble. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. This is a group of amazing online online counselors that provide online counseling via audio calls, via video chat, via messaging, and it's affordable. It is timely. It's on your schedule, and these guys are great. They reach out after hearing episodes with Dr. Adrian Matheson and Dr. Tamina Epen, and um, I think they do amazing work. So if you want to sign up, you get a 10% discount using discount code Solving Healthcare. They're at betterhelp.com, and uh, I highly recommend these guys. Okay, a couple housekeeping things. We've been busting out episodes every week, and for the sake of my marriage, <laughs> We're going to be ex- uh, extending that to every two weeks now that we have a, a few episodes out now. We're also going to explore a different format. We'll call them mini casts, where you get 10 to 15 minute episodes of of innovative things that are, are happening within healthcare that, you know, they might be quite niche, but the idea is that it could be scalable. It reduces spending and provides better care. And so... Um, that's another format we're going to explore. Okay, I'm going to tell you about our next guest, Dr. Jeffrey Turnbull. This guy is a walking angel and, as far as I'm concerned, is a hero. He works with the homeless population. Okay, he's done this throughout his career, and his whole motivation is to give them a voice, humanize them. Provide them with care that they should be receiving in a setting that is optimal for them. So he is the the medical director of the Ottawa Inner City Health Program, which provides full range of care to to the homeless population, including safe injection sites, um, managed alcohol program, and even palliative care. And I got to work with him about 10 years ago in that environment, and it was truly... I don't even know what the, what the word is. It was just eye opening. It was humbling. It was it was fantastic the work that they're providing, and it was a real a true honor to have him on the show. And this guy, let me tell you, he's a baller. Okay, like when I t- let me list off some of his accolades: Order of Canada, Order of Ontario, Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. I don't know exactly what that means, but that sounds proper. He's been the president of the CPSO, which is College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, president of the Canadian Medical Association, president of the Medical Council of Canada. And honestly, the other thing that's amazing about Jeff is he's truly a nice guy and 
he's held all these leadership positions and I've always thought to be, you know, up there, you need to be, you know, you need to be a hard ass. You got to be that militant uh, leadership approach. And he is the opposite. He's been a true inspiration in terms of leadership styles. And I, I, it, he's amazing. So without further ado, Jeffrey Turnbull. Jeffrey Turnbull. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's a privilege, man. Oh, no, it's a privilege is all mine. Oh, thanks for doing this. This is amazing. We are in, where are we actually? So this is our office facility. So we're in the basement of that. Right beside you over there is a nursing station where we draw up injectable hydromorphone for the opioid substitution program. And above all, the next two floors are administrative and where our nurses work and sit uh, when they're not out in the shelters. Wow. I, I mean, we're going to get into this, but I'm going to say right out of the gate, the stuff that you're doing is stuff that angels do. And oh. I, I, it really is a, an honor to be here. And it's uh, it's been an honor to work with you in the past. Um, I want to ask you, the day in the life of Jeffrey Turnbull in 2019, because, I mean, if you look at your resume, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, what is life not like for you? So uh, very, very different. So it's not involved in the hospital and it's not involved in Toronto. So I'm not flying back and forth commuting. Um, I'm here and I've devoted my my week now to the the homeless. Um, today began with picking up eggs and at the farm and, uh, doing some farm work and then bringing Charlie to my youngest son to school. And then from there, I came down for our meeting, which is, I was actually in this boardroom where we go through the list of clients we have at any one time. It's about 280 to 300. And, um, they're in all of the facilities around us and we discuss each case and we have, the care providers, but we also have housing people and social workers and addiction specialists uh, that join us and mental health specialists. Wow. And we all go through each one of those cases about how we're handling them and what are the challenges that we're facing. And I, I can't imagine that these challenges aren't a many. So maybe give us a sense of if you had this magic wand to 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 fix some of the issues that you see like some what are some of the major concerns that you come across dealing with the homeless population well the, the homeless like many other vulnerable or disadvantaged populations um because of their circumstances the poverty that they live in the mental health or addictions lack of education concept of health all of those things uh, bring them to this environment, but it's this environment that prevents them from getting meaningful, reasonable care and moving away from homelessness. So um, if I had a magic wand, as you said, what would I do? Well, um, the, I think we really have to address all those factors that bring people into a world of homelessness, addictions, mental health. And those are the upstream factors. Those are the things like... Um, early childhood development, poverty reduction strategies, education, employment, um, uh, intact family structures, um, not having residential school systems, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. However, 
the my life now is drinking from a fire hose and i just can look at only the complications of that and so the 300 people that i'm looking after today um what's the best thing for them it's improved public health policies it's um better addictions management it's better mental health treatment um and it's bringing care that is traditionally hospital focused or primary care mm-hmm. uh in a residential setting into their world on their terms which is very very different than what you and I've ever experienced before can you can you can you paint that picture like what what is it like to be taking care of such patients well, um, can I tell you about a patient from this morning? Yes, yeah, like, for example, yeah. So he is a um, a guy who came to us yesterday. He's overdosed uh, three times in the last two weeks. Um, had to be resuscitated on two of those three times. The third time just woke up somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and his when you talk to him, you know, you begin by saying, you know, how much what's your addiction like? Well, he's taking, um, um, not only does he take addiction, he's addicted to benzodiazepines. He's also addicted to, um, he's on a gram of Cadian every day, a thousand milligrams. He takes, uh, about two grams of what we call purple, which is, um, fentanyl mostly or other stuff. So two grams, if you think about that, that's, uh, Fentanyl is a hundred times more potent than morphine, so you can do the math. This is massive doses, and he has this history of mental health. Uh, he's been institutionalized. He was um, a product of the child welfare system. He was orphaned at a very young age. He's had a history of abuse and trauma. He has behavior management problems. Um, violence and aggression has been in jail, and. Um, he's 38 and wow. probably will not see 40. Um, probably won't see three, four more months. And so the challenge for him is how do you actually, you know, turn the clock back for him? Mm. How do you start to treat his mental health? Well, he doesn't have a place to stay. He squats, um, and winter's coming. How do you treat his addiction? It's massive. You couldn't give him enough opioids to control that. And his impulses are such that whenever he has something, he takes it. And so he's at very high risk of overdose death. And so we were trying to think about, could we put him in a housed environment, start treating his mental health, then make inroads on his addiction. Um, And all of these things are you know, a, a constellation of impediments for him that will likely lead to his death. That's that's it. That's incredible. Jeff. Like I, the thing that breaks my heart is, you know, we, the general public, you know, we we see people in these circumstances. They're on the street. They're asking for money, and we're like, oh man, get a job, get 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 yourself cleaned up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And just as you alluded to uh, at the beginning, it's like, think about the factors that got them there. You know, it's like we say, like, you know, getting, like, get control of your, your life and, and do these things. But I, you got to question 
when you go through such trauma as you just described this gentleman going through, is it like how much of his fate is in his hands? You know, like, yeah, so, so very little at this point. If there was inroads earlier on when he was six, when he was not abused in foster care or when he was um, uh, early on developing signs of um, disordered mental state and uh, struggling with his trauma, um, if we had to intervene then in a more supportive environment, wrapped services around him, it might have been different. Mm. But now I have a 38-year-old. Yeah. And I have a 38-year-old that's on massive doses of opioids who's overdosing, who can't control behaviors, is unemployed and lives in a world of poverty and doesn't have a place to stay tonight. I can't even find this guy. You know, oh, like, it's God. not as if he's got a, an address. He can't get the usual entitlements. He doesn't have a health card. You know, all of that. So there's so many other built-in obstacles for him to get care that it makes it almost impossible for him to get care. And yeah, you know, what happened to those people that, you know, we, we see, we attend many memorials, obviously, because mm -hmm. of so many people dying um, in this context. And almost always there is a young seven-year-old in a cowboy outfit, a pitcher, you know, mm -hmm. that their parents have brought. Oh my God. And something happened between that seven-year-old in cowboy pants and a cowboy hat to that person who is 25 who just overdosed and died on King Edward and Murray. You know, and this is something that I try and remind our healthcare team is, you know, that patient that we're seeing that got themselves in this situation, I'm doing this, in air, doing air quotes, that's somebody's son. That's somebody's brother. Yeah. And, you know, I, I almost wondered, Jeff, like, because the, the work you guys are doing is, is, is truly amazing. I, I wonder how much, like, are there stories that you've come across or seen where this has made a difference? Are they too far gone because of all the stuff that has happened? You know? So, no, there are, they are never too far gone. Mm. You can... You can always have an impact on their lives. So are there circumstances where we've taken, seen somebody who's on the streets um, and returned them to lives that you and I would think are normal employment, paying taxes, mm -hmm. you know, um, there are not many stories like that, but there are. Mm -hmm. And so, th in fact, that's, you know, keeps us going a lot. But on the other hand, those people who you see on King Edward and Murray that are in veteran alcoholics or injection drug users, um, you know, who've been doing this for many years, you can improve the quality of their life very dramatically mm -hmm. just by simple support, housing, care, treat their HIV, treat their hep C, um, treat their uh, underlying mental health issues, mm -hmm. support them, build trust. And do it in a, a in a, an environment that allows them to have control of their health outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know that, that you may say, well, that's palliative care, but that is, in fact, we're taking people and making their lives better, even though they have an underlying problem that probably they will never recover from. Yeah, and the one thing I mean, 
I got a chance to work with you over a decade ago. And one thing that really stuck to me was how appreciative they are of the care. And I, that it's always stuck with me when I, when I, you know, when you're, and when we were working, it was in a palliative setting, but when you're there to, uh, support their medications or that to hear hear their story it's there was always a thank you there was a genuine look in the eye and saying how appreciative they were and they are they're enormously appreciative and when you bring care to them on their terms suddenly there's a new trust that's built um you don't see them in a hospital environment. This is foreign for them, where authority has always been a challenge for them. You say, "Oh, you got to go out. Can't go out for a smoke," um, you know, and, and that that bad series of behaviors that we see in a hospital environment are so predictable, but they disappear when you deliver care here, and they are charming, nice collegial people i mean they have their moments there's no question about it (laughs) and they make terrible decisions sometimes Mm -hmm. but frankly nobody ever taught them how to make good decisions and that's the world that they live in and uh um it's not for me to judge what's right or for wrong and my job is to try try and improve the quality of their life as best i can and I, i the one thing i think that must be amazing for them too and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but the non-judgmental environment in here, like they are treated like human beings, like the way they should be treated, which unfortunately I don't think is all is always the case everywhere they're everywhere they go, you know. No, and they're not, and you know it's probably the first time in their lives, to be honest with you, where somebody sat down and said, "No, what do you want? Not me." Hmm. What do you want with your addiction, your mental health, you know, and, you know, your future? And sometimes it's just simple stuff. I want to connect with my family once again. I want to have a a room that I can call my own. I want to continue to inject, but I want to be safe. Um, I don't want to die. You know, uh, these are, you know, things that we can achieve. It's crazy. I I mean, it's one thing I've been appreciating doing this, this show a bit. Like, I, I, I just finished a, a show with a child psychologist, and we, d- we talked a lot about child, like the increasing anxiety and depression we're seeing in kids. And what really stuck with me was early intervention, how much of an impact. If we were to invest more early on in in prevention in so in her world if we could have more resources to be able to either treat the kids or to have set up them in an environment for them to thrive you know what i'm saying and once again this is the theme here too you know kids that are getting abused kids that are in foster homes it's you know it's it's just so sad to hear that this is something that we could be doing better you know yeah. And you have to ask yourself, why don't we do better right. on those things? Because we know financially the return on investment is enormous. Right. So it makes good financial sense, if nothing more, you know, to invest into early childhood development. Yeah. 
poverty reduction strategies for children. Those types of education, you know, community building, stuff like that, enormous return on investment. So it's not a financial issue. It's not, it's the right thing to do for communities. Absolutely. But I mean, this is a bit in your world, like you've been in some big wicked men positions. Like, I know you're not like political, but what, what do you think it is? Like, why why aren't we going there? Like, it's our kids. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? This is our future. Yeah. These are our children. And so I, on the one hand, you know, there's an argument to do this for because good for communities is the right thing to do financially. It's the right thing to do from a human rights perspective. Children, like any other citizen of this province, deserve safety, education, housing, nutrition. You know, that's what we would expect of our for our children, mm-hmm. all those entitlements. So why doesn't that happen? Um, as there, I think that we are paralyzed in that sense of um, we can't move ahead um, because of the way our government is structured and the um, the lack of vision that some of our leaders have yeah. about doing what's the right thing. I sometimes in my darker moments wonder about, is there a sense of, I don't want to help them because, you know, why do I want to be, have so much equity within our community mm-hmm. when I'm a, an influential leader who's on the upper side of things? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do believe, by and large, Canadians want, you know, to live in a more equitable society, and they don't want to see people begging um, on their streets or children dying of overdoses. I just, I don't know what the answer is to, but I just, I pray and I hope that it's not because they feel like their their fate is already written on the wall, whatever the expression is. I hope that's not the con- the, the the concern because it's clear from research from from experts that. This is not, this doesn't have to be their fate. It does not have to be their fate. However, I can tell you there is certainty that if you do not deal with this, their fate will be addiction, mental health, in and out of the hospital, in and out of prisons uh, on a regular basis. And the cost of that is something that we just cannot afford. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Like we talked a little bit about this yesterday in in preparation it's like even the fact that we put a lot of these uh, i I don't want to call them patients but these poor people in in environments where they're not going to thrive like in prison we talked about this you go to prison at a vulnerable age and you're in an environment where there are drugs there are violence the the idea of reforming there well on on paper is ridiculous it we know that it's not very effective. But think what we do in society. What we do is we take our most vulnerable populations, those populations that are in the greatest need. Um, in my circumstance, it's just the homeless, but it may not necessarily be the homeless. Maybe our indigenous colleagues, whatever. But we, we, as a society, we tend to isolate those individuals. Mm-hmm. We tend to put them into circumstances out of sight, out of mind. For me, it's lower town. It might be the lower east side in Vancouver. It may be, you know, Regent Park in Toronto or other places. Um, we put those people in those circumstances that are particularly vulnerable. Um, 
There's high risk around them of drugs and violence, etc. Mm-hmm. So we take vulnerable people, put them in circumstances of higher risk. We deprive them of access to reasonable entitlements to help them get out of that circumstance. Mm. And then we're surprised that HIV rates, hepatitis C rates, mental health rates, addiction rates, trauma, suicide, all of that exceeds that of the developing world. Mm. And we're thinking that's odd. Well, our public health colleagues would say that's exactly what you would anticipate. Absolutely. You know, I I think um, I want to ask you a bit about the opioid crisis, but just to that point, too, about, you know, um, the added resources and strain to a system related mostly, I think, to the opioid crisis. I work at uh, Montfort Hospital, so close to Vanier, and the amount of overdoses, complications from injections, uh, whether that's endocarditis or in- infection of the, the valve or bloodstream infections, cellulitis or uh, infections of the skin has been like, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're crazy. Like if I even look in the last eight years. And so I wanted to get a sense from you. Are you feeling this? Like, what are you like you, today? You were saying, you know, you're you were going over about 300, just under 300 cases. If you were to compare this, say, to six years ago or whatnot, is there, has there been a dramatic change? And so our whole world changed in 2016, mm. you know, when the opioid crisis hit. I used to say, you know, we were dealing with alcohol and non-beverage alcohol, you know, from mouthwash yeah. and stuff like that. So oh, this is pretty tough, you know. Mm. And then crack cocaine happened to us. Mm. And I said, oh, it can never get worse than this. And then we had, you know, I would have a couple of people who are heroin addicts in a month um, and maybe three overdoses um, in a month, maybe longer. Wow. Uh, however, in 2016, in August, we had, uh, we knew it was coming and we had 35 overdoses in August. Wow. We had 70 overdoses in September, and we leveled off at five overdoses a day. And so what you're seeing in the emergency department, uh, the the Montfort, the ICU, we don't send our people anymore by ambulance when they overdose. Wow. We deal with them the last time. Often the ambulances bring them to us for resuscitation. Not to the hospital. So that is insane. I don't we know if have, people know this. We have, you know, we, I can't think of the last time we asked an ambulance to come and pick up an overdose. Oh, Our gosh. staff are skilled at looking after it. Um, and we, um, we deal with all of that. We have a program called Targeted Engagement and Diversion where we divert ambulances to us away from hospitals for addiction, your drunk and disorderly, You've got other problems. The ambulances would pick that up person up normally and go to the hospital. But, you know, what would have you? We both know what would happen in the hospital. You would wait for offload. The person would slowly recover. Uh, they would probably never be seen. They would leave AMA and do it again. medical advice, yeah. And do it again. Um, sometimes hundreds of times in, a, you know, six months. Uh, that would happen. And... So we divert those people to us now, 
And so we, at any one time in the evening, you'll see about three ambulances and a squad car outside of our unit. And those are people dropping off, not picking up. We divert 3,400 emergency visits to us every year away from the emergency department. That is absolutely insane. It, like, think, think about it's this. It's off the hook. And you go there <laughs> uh, that at is crazy. 11 or 1 in the morning, it is off the hook. Like, we have 45 beds, and they are all full every okay. night. So let me just summarize this and make sure I got this right. So as of three years ago plus, the uh, because of the opioid ap- epidemic, the volume of cases that you were seeing put you in a situation where you are now having to or encouraging ambulance amb- ambulances to to see to come to, to here to, for you guys to manage these patients and diverting that many. You said three thousand four hundred. Yeah, ambulance visits per uh, year. And and y'all, you you guys think your your wait times in the merge are long now. Imagine if th- these guys were coming in. That's a lot. That's like, what is that? 3,400 divided three, six, like 10 a day, almost 10 a day. Oh, at least. Remember, we have wow. 45 beds. And so those are just ambulances. Then there's the walking, walking. wounded who come oh in. Oh, my God. And the police, um, OC transport. Now, it's not all op- the opioid crisis. It's mm. people who are addicted to alcohol, mental health crisis, etc. But it's been made worse by the opioid crisis. And so I think the our world has changed dramatically with the opioid crisis. We have seen, you know, deaths and, you know, complications, as you've described, of heart infections, of skin infections and bone infections. And we deal with that every day. Wow. Uh, we probably have at any one time three people on intravenous six weeks of intravenous therapy for complicated infections as a result of injection drug use. Um, so the, the opioid, it's just turned our whole world upside down. Yeah, I got to tell you, too, like, just to put a bit of context in this, too, like, we would see, like, you obviously got appreciation of the numbers, but in ICU, you know, we would see maybe one or two patients we would lose or would pass away, like opioid-related or overdose-related, you know, from known IV drug use or from complications thereof. And I can think of at least two cases in the last uh, two months where people under the age of 40, one was in the late late 20s and one's in the early 30s, once again, a mom, a parent, a brother, a sister, a loved one that is now deceased it's it's crazy and it's and it's so sad and I, I just i just can't believe the work that you guys do and i mean i might be ignorant because i didn't know about these numbers and i if i don't know if this is well known throughout you know the city but if not you this needs to be praised because this is amazing work that y'all are doing so it's a i like to think of it as a the problem is one that profoundly affects our community where we come from. Hmm. And the solutions will come from our community. And yes, we'll draw upon the Malfour Hospital, the Ottawa Hospital for support. Um, but by and large, they want their care 
as much as it can be done for the resuscitations to their intravenous therapy, whatever, to be provided to them on their terms in their location. They don't do well in hospitals or in other institutional Structure. settings. Yeah. They, so if we can do our best to provide that care, it's cheaper, mm. it's better for them, we get better outcomes, and our community is the better for it. What I love about this is like, you guys took it in your own hands. You took it in your own hands. This is a problem. You want the solution. And I think this is a model for a lot of people too, by the way, because we're in a town where a lot of people bitch and complain about, and, and there's no action. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of da 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 da, da. And the thing that I, I, I will always be proud to associate with y'all is the fact that you saw the problem, you come up with a solution that works with the patient, with the, with, with the people, not something that you think is best, not the model that you read in some textbook that says that, oh, this model, this is the way we should approach this problem without looking the, the, the patient or the people in the eye and saying, what will work for you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, but to do that... You know, our healthcare system, you know, to be give it its credit, is very good for the majority of people who use its services. You know, these are mm -hmm. people like you and I. Um, and I'm very proud of that. Very proud of our tertiary hospitals and our primary care. But for this, these people, the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, they just, it has to be on their terms and it won't be successful if we just say, you know, look, here's what's offered to you, take it or leave it, because mm. it'll be leave it. And we know the consequences of that. Mm. So if you actually sit and listen to them and say, what would be the care that you need? How would that be delivered? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, that is liberating because now you can start to think of ways that really are successful. You engage them. They start to trust you. Um, but on the other hand, it's very intimidating and very challenging. Mm -hmm. So what is appropriate for them? Um, you know, is it right for me to be doing chest taps um, and giving IV therapy to somebody in a shelter environment? You know? And but, but, you know, it's a shared decision. It's their decision. It's a shared decision. That's what's beautiful about it. Like, yeah, there's risk maybe of, you know, it's not the ideal environment, but you're two grown-ass people saying like these are what this is the situation these are the risks this is how you know this is what our options are is this okay yeah and they invariably will accept the option of saying i want you to provide the the care that you think is the best for me mm -hmm. on my terms and you know and you know frankly that's patient centered care that's what exactly um that's probably what we should be doing, and that's why we got trained as physicians to serve that community. To serve and to serve all. Yeah, not just know. the people we kind of like <laughs> <laughs> who look like us, but more so to, to serve people who, you know, just are so, you know, they they struggle so much. You know, I I, I want to get into a bit of some of these stories as well because, like, you were talking to me yesterday about a lot about their mindset a lot of these these uh the, the patients you see because 
on the surface, you know, when you some of these patients in hospital, because it's not an environment where they thrive, there's a lot of attitude, there's a lot of conflict. And so I think a lot of people get their, whatever the expression is, guns up or backs up. The, the, the humanization isn't always there. You know what I'm saying? And so can you think, like, what are some of the mindset that you find when once you make that connection, once you have that rapport, like, where are their heads at? So I can only give you examples. And so just recently I was chatting with a young lady who, would be in her 20s, uh, early 20s. And um, there was a lot of behavioral challenges that we had encountered with her. And um, and we she was a very profound opioid addict, a fentanyl addict. And those behaviors related to her addiction, either out there searching for the money to feed a $150 a day habit, mm. um, or the consequences of injecting and um, being a fentanyl addict, recovering from your injection. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just, I was chatting with her about sort of opioid substitution and how we could better manage this. And, you know, this person who was at first standoffish and kind of hostile a little bit, then just suddenly disintegrated. She was in her young, she was 20s early 20s, and she said, you know, I never thought this would be what my life was like. Mm. I squat in housing, uh, you know, out in a parking lot. Um, I'm assaulted on a regular daily basis. Um, I have no belongings. I don't connect with my family anymore. Um, Four years ago, I was in school, and now I'm a street prostitute addicted to fentanyl. This is my life, you know. And, you know, it's hard for me to sort of think about how terrible that would be. You know, I couldn't conceive of that for any of my children. And it's very hard to walk away from that and saying, you know, that's your problem. You made that decision. Mm. You know, her mental health, uh, she three or four years ago started to hear voices. That's when her mental health deteriorated. And that's where it's led her. Um, so I think we have an obligation not to walk away from that person. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear this story because once again, you know, a lot of the people listening to this is our healthcare providers. And, you know, I've said it a couple of times now, but they are human beings. Yeah. This poor yeah. girl did not want to be sleeping with people to make money so that she could pay for her addiction. Right. And, and like, and Jeff, like maybe even illustrate, like once you're addicted, what's that like? Like, you know, like we, we judge and say, Oh, they're, they're seeking more drugs or whatever. What's it like not to get that fentanyl? So they will say, um, that they can't conceive of anything worse in their life. Um, than to go without. Mm. Um, One person just recently said, you know, if you gave me the choice of being hit by a car today and dying as a result of a motor vehicle accident or coming into hospital and withdrawing from fentanyl, I would choose any second the motor vehicle accident and death rather than that. That's how powerful 
and how terrifying withdrawal is for these people, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, you'd say, oh, well, why do they inject? Well, they inject because of this terror of withdrawing. They inject because of the high. And when you talk to them about, you know, well, you just can't keep getting high all the time, um, they look at you and they say, you know, you think I'm doing this to get high? I do this to get numb. Mm. I just want one hour out of 24 when I don't have to be me. A person who is living on the streets, who has no family, poor, um, mental health, committing crime, things that, you know, they thought as they grew up, they would never, ever do. That would be somebody else. Mm. And now that's who they are. And for 23 hours of the day, they have to be that person. Mm. But for one hour, they get to be numb. And they have so much history of trauma uh, throughout their life um, that they're just trying to forget that for a very short period of time. So it's really not up to me to judge when they inject or not inject. Or it's only really up to me to better understand the circumstances. Yeah, I, even as a health professional, like I don't know if I fully appreciate how difficult withdrawing can be on on our patients, and like, because I mean, like most most things that we see, we've all had a family member broke a leg, go through, a, have a deliver a baby, burst their appendix, or whatever. You know, not everyone's had a family member withdrawing from fentanyl, so or hopefully not a clinician doing the same thing, but uh, it's less, um, what's the word, relatable, maybe. Yeah. And so, like, to hear stories like that, I think, can go a very long way. I got to ask you, because the work that you guys are doing, once again, is incredible. Is this unique to Ottawa? Is this, are other places doing similar, similar activity? So, the, like we provide sort of comprehensive health promotion, primary care, secondary care, some tertiary care, mm-hmm. uh, even end of life care um, for the homeless community. So, and we have shamelessly borrowed and stole from some of our colleagues when they have good ideas throughout the country and internationally. However, now we've sort of moved beyond that. And some of the work that we're doing is almost every week we have somebody from another city, the United States, Europe, um, um, Australasia just recently. So it is unique in terms of the overarching comprehensiveness of what we do, uh, that no other city does that. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, some aspects of it have been reproduced uh, in other jurisdictions. So our managed alcohol program um, is a program that has now been reproduced in all of the Netherlands. Wow. Um, yet we went to the Netherlands and looked at how they deal with opioid addiction. Mm. You know, so um, it's a it's a process of sharing internationally. Yeah, because, you know, one of the themes of our show is just promoting anything that's innovative, that provides better care, that allows healthcare to be more sustainable. And just hearing this and 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 hearing the work that you do, hearing the 45 beds and diverting all this 
these cases from emerge like it really it really needs to be championed i i i mean i know, I know every city's different and and just like we talked about with each kind of clinical scenario you want to tailor it to the to the city but the bare bones of it i think is incredible the principle is one that i think people who are interested in health policy should really adhere to the principle is moving care to where it's best applied mm. based on the needs of that unique community. Mm -hmm. And whether you're indigenous or frail elderly or homeless, um, the, the principle is the same. You know, your day is filled with looking after people who probably at the Ottawa hospital could be cared for just as well in another cheaper setting. 100%. And so shouldn't we try and embrace that principle wherever we are? Now, I happen to have practiced that in a homeless setting. And frankly, if you can do it in the shelters over here, and if you can give IV and oxygen and treat HIV and hep C and seizures, as well as addictions and mental health, and you can do that in, a, in an, an environment of a shelter, you can probably do that anywhere. Wow. That's a that's a freaking powerful statement right there, man. Um, so many lessons there. What would you need to thrive even more than you're thriving now? So when we started this process, we started with what I'll call the front end. That's the the stabilization, initial treatment, etc. Um, so somebody out of control because of their addiction, their mental health, living in a world of chaos. Um, it was our hope is to be able to stabilize that person, get them frontline care for their HIV, their hep C, their addiction and their mental health. And we did that. And we continue to do that on a regular basis. But we never thought much about, you know, because we just weren't thinking um, <laughs> about the back end. Like after that, they turned to us and said, so what? Mm. Now you've got me stable. Now I want a garden and reconnecting with my kids. And I want to, you know, cook for myself. And, you know, that led us then to say, okay, well, we now have to have a lot of what I'll call back-end services. So we've got residential housing programs. We have four sites or hotels now that we've taken over with individuals. But... As we continue to stabilize people and move people out of this environment, which is toxic to them and dangerous and inappropriate for anybody, and as we just need 40 hotels, not mm. four. Mm. You know, we need to have supportive, subsidized housing where we can take these people and say, here's a place for yourself. Go and thrive. But we are on site. We will continue to help you with your mental health. We will continue to look after addiction. We will continue to look after your HIV and hep C and endocarditis, whatever it might be. Wow. To have that support there. You know, the thing I think is so beautiful, and I think I might have said this already, but it's the non-judgmental approach to to treating these, these patients. Like, the, you know, I, I still remember the days where somebody comes in with alcohol withdrawal, okay, and... You know, they're, they're at rounds and they're, someone's talking about giving them more 
uh, sedatives to try and keep them more calm and all that stuff. And I'll be, and I'll be like, just give them some alcohol. Give them a Labatt's Blue on ice, okay? Uh, and this will fix everything. The withdrawal stops. We don't have to give them sed- uh, increasing level of sedation. So let me just walk you through what normally happens in, in real life. So if someone comes in with alcohol withdrawal, you treat them with normally a benzodiazepine more like uh, uh, Ativan, for example, to try and manage their symptoms. Sometimes you need more. Sometimes their level of consciousness goes down. Sometimes they can't maintain their airway. So now they need to be intubated. Sometimes that they, uh, they might develop a pneumonia because of their de- decreased level of consciousness. They're in ICU for four days. They cost the system probably about $15,000 at that point of ICU costs. And the solution could have been they get their beer, they get their brandy, get their alcohol of choice. And they'll be home in a day. And often the solution was they came to you because of a pneumonia, hmm. which now because of the sedation that you've given them is much worse. Mm-hmm. And they're going to stay for a longer period of time with complications. And now they've got a seizure as well because of the alcohol withdrawal. In fact, if you just gave the person antibiotics out in the community, mm-hmm. they would never have come to you in the first place and would have gotten better care. Exactly. If and that's what seen. you and I would have expected for a simple pneumonia. But for some reason, we're going to put those people at huge risk to their lives, withdraw them. And, you know, they're going to, it's enormously expensive to them, their own personal health, and to us as a system. Because of, and it all comes down from judgment, from not having that patient centered focus. Get, put your ego away. Say, look at Charlie or what, yeah. or, or Chuck and say, what do you need now yeah. to get yourself out of this? Yeah. Wow, man. And, you know, when you sit down with Charlie or Chuck, you find out this guy's an architect or this guy was the guy who designed the Welland Canal or this guy is an artist. I got to tell you, that was the most mind boggling thing I call me an ignorant uh, screwball, but that month that we I spent with you, that was the most touching, humbling thing. Is that you would talk to this sixty-five-year-old guy that's dying, you know, and in and, and dying comfortably, thankfully because of the care that uh, y'all were providing. But he lived a life. He had he accomplished some things, and he was a uh, you know, a chartered accountant or, or worked for the government and had a divorce, got to the bottle and, and that got the better side of him, got homeless, lost his money and yeah. had complications thereof after, uh, related to that. And you, you just realize like, yes, these are, I keep saying it, they're human yeah. beings. And they, you know, frankly, could be any one of could us. Any one just of us. A step away from those series of events, you know, that brought that person to that state. Could be any of us or our families. Absolutely. So, just in summary, Jeff, where, how, how can we fix some of these these major issues, like practically? So, I think there is something that everyone can do in this. It's not for healthcare providers or housing people or social workers. Mm -hmm. This is for our whole community. And there's something that we can 
all do to contribute. Yes, if you want to fix it, um, work on some of those upstream social determinants, um, but they're going to take time. We've still got so many people who need care, mm. um, but communities can embrace these individuals. We can mm. start to think of better ways of moving care out of the hospital environments into the communities mm. where we can do it much more effectively. We can listen to this community much more. Yes, we can invest in subsidized housing and we can do better with more addiction counseling and mental health services. All of those things are things we can certainly do. But at the same time, I would argue that we should be starting to seriously think about policy decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, do we think it's right to fill our prisons with people with mental health and addictions? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we be trying to deal with that as a, an, a, an illness rather than uh, some social aberration? Mm-hmm. Um, so couldn't we be thinking of more informed um, drug policy? Mm-hmm more informed uh, social policy as we look to support these populations. Certainly our indigenous communities, Mm. certainly uh, others who find themselves so disadvantaged, you know, shouldn't we be reaching out with, you know, or advocating for, you know, evidence-informed policy decisions rather than uh, what seems to be, you know, palatable to a population such as war, you know, there's a war on drugs, which does not work. Yeah. I always like to, you know, when we get to the end, hear a story where you were proud of what you do. You, you got the sense that, you know, this is why I'm here. You know, um, I've always thought we spend the first half of our life trying to live up to the expectations of our parents and the, second half of our lives living up to the expectation of our children. Mm -hmm. And I think the time that I feel the proudest of what I'm doing is when um, my kids see what I'm doing and they just say, you know, what you're doing is a good thing. And I just want you to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes all the you know, the late nights, the on-call, the, you know, you know, times when I don't sleep, that makes it worthwhile. And I, so I think that that's probably the, the times when they're with them and they say, with the homeless, and they just say, you know, your dad's doing a good thing. Wow. That's what probably makes me the most proud. I mean, I, I, I always... I, I got to tell you, life has changed since bringing in some offspring in the world, but I... What you're, what you're saying reigns true. Like I, I always say to myself, like in general, in, in life in general, how, how would the kids react when they were, if they saw dad in this situation? How would, how would dad want to react if dad was what? How would you like to be viewed by your children? Mm -hmm. What will they say about you Mm -hmm. when, you know, you're 70, 80 or gone? Mm -hmm. What will they say? You know, he made a whole bunch of money. You know, or he did the right thing. You know what? And that's what it comes down to. And this is another theme of the show is like, let's all try and do the right thing. Let's all be able to look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day 
and say, I did something good here. Yeah. I did something that my kids will be proud of. And um, I just, I, th- I, I do feel like sometimes we need to say that more, you know? Yeah, we have to think that our job, why we were here, why we were put on this earth, why we were educated, why we, were, you know, society put money into us was to serve. Mm. That's why we're here. And to serve a community, no matter who they are, but those people in need and independent of their income and what they look like. Mm-hmm. So that's our job. And, and to be honest with you, like not to get too philosophical on, on y'all cats, but like in this era where we're a little bit, where we're seeing more depression and, and mood disorders and everything, you want to be happier, serve. Yeah. You know, help others. Yeah. And I promise you, you will you'll be more content. You'll find more fulfillment. And, um, you know, it's easier. I know for a lot of people, it's easier said than done. But, you know, I I do truly believe moving towards that direction leads to a more fulfilled life. I do, too. I honestly agree that this concept of bringing meaning into your life, Mm -hmm. we do it in many different ways. We can, you know, through children, through relationships, um, but some of us have this great opportunity to bring meaning through our work hmm. and we're blessed uh, and we shouldn't squander that. Amen, brother. I, I, I can't, I mean, this was truly special for me, man. Like I, I've looked up to you for a while. I, I, we didn't totally get into all the work that Jeff does cause we would he- be here for three hours and 47 minutes, but you know, how, how many hours do you sleep in a day? I'm not a big sleeper. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I asked you that, you said about four hours. It's and uh, and uh, the amount of work you, you do, the amount of meaningful work you do, the impact you're having on so many lives. I, I, I'm i proud to know you, buddy. Well, that's I, I very truly kind. am. I've been a great fan of yours, too. Well, Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. How amazing was that? <laughs> oh my God. I love Jeff. Um, so in terms of lessons from this episode, from an administrative level, we really need programs to support programs like Jeff's where we provide care in a, a setting where the homeless and the vulnerable patient population can thrive. Uh, I think it's, I think it's scalable. I think it's too important and, um, we need to we need more of that from a clinician point of view remember these are human beings whatever we could do to support them in an environment that is optimal for them i think we got to do our best to to do that so let's work with our homeless population let's work with our our drug addicts and 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 provide them with care that will allow them to thrive and then from a general population point of view honestly if you have time volunteer your time connect with these guys, provide some support. It truly is amazing. You will you will get as much out of it as you are providing for them. I promise you that. Okay, that's it for episode nine. So if you want to connect with us, we're on Twitter at Quadcast. We're on Facebook. Uh, we got a Facebook page, so like us there at Quadcast. If you have any comments, send them at Quadcast. 99 at gmail.com and 
Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you in a week or two.